everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the Podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Brandon Metcalf, a co-founder and CEO at Place Technology, a developer of financial forecasting and business planning software used to serve SaaS and professional services. Today, we're going to talk with Brandon about helping SMBs solve the challenges that come with financial forecasting. But before we get into that, Brandon, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Cool. So excited to kind of learn a little bit more about you and especially for the listeners. We kind of like to start these interviews by learning about the guests. So um, why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a repeat founder. So like my background career started in financial services and then I Stumbled into staffing and recruiting, and when I was in staffing and recruiting, I got really frustrated with the technology and software that was available, so I decided we could build a better one. So in 2019, I started building what became my last company, uh, which was a company called Talent Rover. So started building that software in 2009, incorporated at the end of 2011. I ended up scaling that to a, a global company. So we had nine offices in eight countries with customers in more than 40 countries. And then I ended up exiting and selling that business uh, to our largest competitor in, in March of 2018. And a lot of what we did at that company actually led to what we're doing now at Place. And what I mean by that is at Talent Rover, we, uh, we ended up raising quite a bit of money for the business. We raised $28 million for the business. Um, 25 of that came from angel investors. And then three of it came from our largest client at the end. And, uh, you know, in order to raise that kind of money from, from angels, you really, I think, have to do two things pretty well. Uh, you have to execute, which, you know, we had great quarters and we definitely had tough uh, quarters as well. And, you know, more importantly, I think, is we also had to understand really our financials. So I built all these financial models out that allowed us to forecast the business and got really good at it, especially cash flow forecasting. Uh, we use these models throughout the life of the company. And even throughout the exit process, we were pursued to, to be bought in the beginning of 2017. And it took a full year for us to get to the right number, mainly because we knew what we, you know, what the value of the company really was and where it was going. So after we exited, I stayed with the, the buyer for a short period of time. And then I decided to venture off and do my next thing. And I started doing some consulting work to figure out what the heck that was going to be. And I started consulting some tech and services companies and it really became clear what they all wanted and needed was these financial models that I had built. And they also wanted to operationalize them like I did. And, you know, that's where the idea for place came. And in August of 2018, I founded the company and we started building the product and um, we, we actually launched and started sales in January of 2020. And, you know, today we have about, I don't know, about 40 something employees total operations here in, in Austin, Texas, and then we have a big development center in, in Jaipur. And we're just essentially trying to solve the problems with finance and financial forecasting that we lived with at, at my last company. It's been a, a fun endeavor so far. Yeah, that's kind of a, a really interesting story. So let me get this straight. As you were kind of exiting your first company, you relied on these financial models and forecasting models. And you exited, completed the exit, and then went out, did some consulting and figured, okay, this is something people actually need and, and turned that into a business. Was that all right? And then can you talk about maybe, um, I don't know, how you do that? What's the mission of the company? Yeah, it was close. Um, you know, one, one key missing point is though, we actually used these models while running my last company and it's how we, how we could successfully understand um, the business. Like for example, we had an opportunity to win a deal with the largest company in our space um, called the Adeco Group. Um, and to win this deal, like we were about a 40 person in a company at the time and Adeco is a 33,000 employee company. So talk about a, a, a difference in perspective. But in order to win this deal, you know, it was going to cost us millions to scale the company. So. You know, I was able to leverage these financial forecasts to go to our investors and say, hey, here's here's the opportunity and here's some different scenarios that we have. Um, if we want to do this, this is how big this deal could be for us. And, you know, that comes with a price tag of how much cash we're going to need to raise. And, 
know, we had some really supportive investors that said, let's do it, let's go big. And ultimately it's what made us um, have, have such an amazing exit that we had. But it was really that understanding of those financials while running the business. So the rest of how you explained it uh, is exactly right, that we used it then to actually, you know, understand the value of the company so we could exit and then start to help other companies solve this same problem where, you know, if we didn't have the seven years or so of actually using these models on a daily basis to really understand and perfect them, I don't think we'd be able to do what we're doing now, but um, because we have and we learn through uh, the school of hard knocks, if you will, of what works and what doesn't work with these forecasts. I think we're in a really good position. And uh, so far it's been great. Like we have, uh, you know, over 40 customers today and um, they've rated us as the third highest um, performing uh, forecasting software on independent review site G2, which, you know, that happened in 15 months. So we're super excited about the impact we can make. So it sounds like you have this uh, very kind of marketable talent or, or skill when it comes to financial forecasting. And, or, and we're kind of here still learning about you, the guest. So was that something you were always interested in? Or did you sort of, like you said, develop that through experience, the School of Hard Knocks? Um, talk about your, your experience or interest in finance. I've always had a bit of an interest in finance and the numbers. I mean, it's one of the things that led me into financial services uh, as my first career. But, you know, I don't have an MBA or, or I didn't really go to school specifically for finance or anything like that. It's just, it's just come nat- it came natural to me. I've always understood numbers and how they work and why they work uh, the way they do. Similar to my experience with software, like when I decided to build Talent Rover, I'd never even worked at a software company, much less built one and and managed one. Um, But it was also something that kind of just came to me. My background is really more of a generalist. So I've I've done a lot of different types of role, mostly leadership roles throughout my whole career, but in different industries and different focuses and different size teams and all of that. And I really think, you know, what makes me successful doing what I'm doing now is that experience that, you know, doing different things, understanding really what makes a business tick and why it works the way that it does. And you know, I, I lean on those skills every single day to run the company now. Yeah, I, I want to keep asking. Tell us about that path and like what did you study in school and, and talk about maybe a couple of the jobs you had out of school. Yeah. So communications is, is what I studied, which is kind of generic in general. But um, I've never been a huge fan of, of school in, in, in general. Um, I'm actually in the process right now of completing a, a three-year program at Harvard Business School, which I think was one of the most amazing things I've ever done. So I was supposed to finish that last March, but obviously with COVID, uh, things got delayed. So I go back for my my final final rounds uh, here in August and graduate at the end of August, which I'm excited about. But school itself, you know, I, I wanted to be in business. Like even in high school, I took a, a jobs program. So my senior, my junior and senior year in high school, my last three classes of the day was actually going to work at a newspaper um, and I managed uh, really accounting for a classified department in, a, in our local, local newspaper and just absolutely have always been fascinated by business and love business. So I've tried to work as much as I can and, you know, started off at the bank doing, you know, personal banking. And then when I turned 21, I got my first banking center to manage, which was exciting and a huge responsibility of, you know, not only managing the bank and the people, but managing the P&L and understanding how P&L works and, and all of that, and then just kind of grew from there. Um, what I, I think the, the real secret to my success, though, is more relationship building. And I've always had people take me under their wing, like at the bank, I had an executive vice president, Gail, who I had a frank conversation with her. I just said, hey, I want to I build a career. What do I need to do? And she's like, all right, well, here's the goals for you. Go and accomplish these. And I said, fine. And I went and I crushed those goals. And then I said, what's next? Um, and that's kind of the, the secret of everything I've ever done is finding smart people that I can get to invest energy into me and then trying to exceed their expectations and, and just constantly challenge myself and grow. And, you know, I went from from managing banks in Orlando to they sent me to Chicago to open banks there because uh, Bank of America, which is who I worked for, was just launching their retail banking centers there and did that for a little while and then started to get bored and wanted to do something else. So I stumbled into a, a job posting for a division of Kelly Services, which is a pretty large staffing firm. So I took that job. I you know, moved from Chicago to Denver and uh, was a sales manager for the Colorado market. And, 
you know, did really well there. Within nine months, I was the number one person in, in my division. So they sent me to Sacramento to rebuild that market. So I did that. And six months after that, they sent me to Northern California to, to run the Northern California region. And I did that. And it's kind of funny how life works where I was managing that region and I get a random call from this guy named Kent Gray who said, hey, I want to go to lunch with you. And I'm like, who the heck are you? And he's like, just come to lunch with me. So I go to lunch with him and find out that he owns an executive headhunting firm in San Francisco and he was recruiting me to come work with him. His sister-in-law managed a, a division inside of, of my regional office. So she backdoored me to him, essentially. So I went and decided to, to make the leap and go work for him and started off doing headhunting for like CFOs and VPs of finance in the Bay Area during a big boom time. So like interacting with the CFOs of these top tech companies was pretty interesting and really, really exciting. And, you know, again, leads to kind of where I got to now. And then... What really changed is I was about, I don't know, a year and a half into that job, maybe two years into that job. And I got a random phone call from Google. And you know, when Google calls you, you go to see what Google wants to talk to you about. So I went through, I don't know, at least 10, if not 20 interviews. And they ended up making me a crazy offer to come and work. So I went back to Kent and just said, hey, like Google called and wants me to go work for them. I'm, Kind of excited about the position, but also like what I'm doing here, but, you know, I don't know what to do. And, you know, again, building on this relationship thing, Kent said, give me a few hours and let's have a conversation. So a few hours went by and we ended up chatting again. And he's like, look, I can't pay you what Google's going to pay you, but you're probably one of the most technical people I've ever met. And we have a need to grow our company and we have a need for someone to lead technology. So why don't you take on that job? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. I'd rather do that. And I turned down a, a good job at Google and, and trusted in Kent and, and that opportunity. And, you know, then I started to, to look at the hardware we were using, the technology we were using, all of it and said, you know, let's replace everything and, and set the company up for scaling. And the last thing I looked at was the software that we were using and said, this is just terrible. It was terrible at Kelly Services. It's terrible here. And that's where the idea came from for Talent Rover. So I went to, went to Kent and said, hey, I have a crazy idea. Why don't we build our own software? And he validated, yes, that's a very crazy idea. But I also built out a whole financial plan of saying, here's the numbers. Like, here's the ROI. This is how fast we pay it back. This is what it looks like. And he said, you know, I trust you. Let's do it. So started building it. And, you know, a couple months in, I was like, wait, we've looked at all the software that's available and nothing we like. Why would we not commercialize this? So I went back to Kent and said, now you're really going to think I'm crazy. Um, and he said, yeah, this is the, probably one of the craziest things I've heard. Talked to lawyers, talked to everyone, said, you know, what's the risk if we do this? What does this look like? He talked to his other partners and ultimately we said, let's do it. And that's how Talent Rover began. And that's what started my career in the software and the technology. And, you know, Talent Rover ended up making being a big success and making all the investors some, some really good cash. And, you know, it was a crash course in how to build and scale a software company that led me to, you know, what I'm doing now. So it's a pretty, pretty unusual career path, um, I would say, but it's all based off of relationship and hard work and, you know, showing up, doing the job and putting trust in people and, and not losing that trust. Yeah, that's a hell of a story, Brandon. <laughs> did you start the company as a solo founder or did you co-found it? Yeah, so uh, the story there is that at Talent Rover, I never developed a product professionally. So towards the end, like our last two years, I started looking for a VP of technology, someone that could come in that really has professional software development experience. And I found a guy named Cabe who I hired and, you know, he helped us reinvent it and really set up proper practices for building software and all of that. So he and I became really close. So when Talent Rover exited, uh, I started having conversations with him about, hey, I have an idea. And Cabe being Cabe was like, I'm in, let's do this. So Cabe is my co-founder. He's, uh, his title is Chief Technology Officer, but he really serves as more of a Chief Operating Officer where, you know, initially he was managing product and engineering. And then about a year into place or so, he came back to me and he said, you know what, I want to take over 
like leading customer success and leading solutions and engineering and implementation. And I said, absolutely. Um, and since then, he's been really managing the entire operational side of the company. Wow, that's so cool. I mean, like it, it kind of falls back on that idea of like, you know, strength of relationships and, you know, having that partner ready to go because you had a, as a partner in the previous company. Keep talking about the team you built. So who are the people maybe um, outside of you and your co-founder that, that you've kind of put in place behind Place Technology? You definitely hit on a theme with me where it wasn't just people investing in me. Now I look at how can I invest in people and, and do the same thing. And, you know, I always look at it as people set a really high bar for me to achieve. So I, I tend to do the same thing for, for people on my team as well. So outside of Cave, we, we recruited um, our lead architect from Talent Rover to become our, our head of engineering, a guy named Man Meat, who's just been phenomenal. So he's been with us really since day one. And then we started to, to build out the team. So, you know, here in Austin, uh, we have like 15 or 16 people or so. And then in Jaipur, we have, I don't know, 27, I think, or so, something like that. Um, but we really focus on culture and how people fit into the organization. And that's what helps us identify the best people that we think are going to work well with us. And, you know, our, our, our core values, we really focus on. I don't know, I think things that have made us successful in the past, like one of our core values is radical candor. So we're going to be very transparent, very honest, very direct, but we're going to do it in a, in a way that is caring. That we're just not going to be an asshole when we get feedback, but we're, we're going to tell you, you know, the honest truth. And we want you to tell us the honest truth as well. And we live that core value every day. And then other ones like show up, so be present when you're here. Um, get it done, like find ways of getting things accomplished, uh, building products we believe in. We actually get to use our product every single day. So we, we know it inside and out. And one of the biggest core values we have is enjoying the journey of taking, taking a moment and realizing small accomplishments. I mean, building a, a software company or any startup is one of the most difficult things I think you can do because the odds are stacked against you. No one really gets what you're doing. There's a lot of skepticism. It's a little bit easier for us the second time because we have an exit out under our belt, but you know, it, it's definitely still very, very difficult. So finding team members that get those core values that, you know, are, are relentless in their pursuit of, of delivering for the customer, which is, if you look at some of our reviews, why the reviews are so good, because our team just really cares about the customer loving the product and, and enjoying and using it and solving the needs. So, you know, it's holistic. Um, nothing operates in a vacuum. So you got to pay attention to product as much as you got to pay attention to customers and investors and, and the whole thing. But if you hire the right people and you enjoy them and they enjoy being around you, it does make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Can you expand on celebrating those wins? You know, I, I, I work in software myself and things move so fast and things are so crazy and it feels like, you know, there's always... 10 things you got to do and you got enough time to do four of them. How do you find the time to first off find wins? And then how, how does that look in practice, like celebrating them? Yeah. I mean, it, it's really, first of all, setting, you know, the mindset of we're going to celebrate small wins as much as we're going to celebrate big wins because the small losses hurt almost as bad as the big losses. So you can't get consumed with, you know, setbacks. And I talk a lot about this where, you know, building a company, you're constantly face, facing setbacks, you know, big and small. And if you if you just focus on the setbacks, then you're you're going to fail. Um, you're mentally going to just crumble eventually. And you know, some people are stronger than others, and they can last longer. But you can't just continue to get beat up and 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 see no uh, wins. So we look at everything from you know the number of people that pick up the phone when we call them has increased. Okay, how did we do that? We look at, you know, how long someone has been on the team and celebrate that. We look at, you know, other things like you just bought a house. Great. We have this thing where we buy everyone what's called a gurgle pot. And people actually laugh because it's, uh, it's just a thing with us. But it's constantly just looking at stuff that, you know, means something to someone. You don't want to just celebrate trivial stuff, but stuff that has some type of impact. Finding those things, focusing on those things. We have... Um, we have a culture committee for the company where they're constantly looking at, you know, 
What happy hours do we want to do? What nonprofit events do we want to do? How do we give back? How do we just connect and be be around each other and not have to talk about business, business, but really just be around each other and enjoy being around each other? And that type of mentality leads to people starting to get connected and understanding each other, and that will show the things that are important to people that you should celebrate. And I think that's far more meaningful than just hitting a quota or something like that. If you can find what really connects you with your other team members and you find you know, what's important to celebrate with them, then you're building a different type of culture where it's not just, you know, how's the business doing? It's no, how's the team doing and how are people feeling? Gets back to relationships. I had to Google gurgle pot while, while you were talking and it's a very <laughs> cool looking kind of fish vase type of thing. And, uh, you know, I might have to get one myself after uh, after this if, if you don't send me one. But let's get back to the interview here. I want to hear about kind of the value proposition. You know, you did mention it's these it's these models of financial forecasting and, and more. So uh, why don't you describe in your own words the essence of your innovation at Place Technology? If you think about corporate finance, it's a really tough job. Um, and the people that do that job are typically really brilliant. I mean, the amount of pressure that they have on making sure that the numbers they present back to the executive team is right is is critical. Like, no one wants to go into a board meeting and all of a sudden realize your numbers are wrong. So it's immense pressure. But the process of what they have to do to get those numbers made has never made sense to me. And the time that it takes is really, really frustrating. And what I mean by that, I'll use, I'll use Talent Rover as an example. You know, we ended up having eight different entities. So we had a different subsidiary in each of the countries that we were working in. So at the end of the month, it would take at least 30 to 45 days for accounting to be able to get us updated financials to understand how we did that month. And then with our financial forecast that we build in the spreadsheets, you're looking at hundreds of hours of every single month just to keep those things updated. And I've literally spent half of my time on an airplane flying around the world to our different offices and seeing customers. And I would still personally spend about 20 to 30 hours a month working on those models because we knew the value that we got out of them. But I, the process of how you get them built, I think, is, is outdated and somewhat broken, meaning you know, all of the data that goes into those financial models comes from usually different systems. And you know, half the battle with producing the model is gathering all that data, entering it into the spreadsheet, hoping you didn't enter something wrong, hoping you didn't break a formula, uh, which we did all the time. And we would you know, really hope we caught the mistake. But usually what happened is a couple months later, all of a sudden you're like, okay, this doesn't look right. And then you realize your forecast has been broken for months. But you had no idea because these things are just massive, massive spreadsheets with tons of pages and, and thousands of cells. So it's very easy to make mistakes. So when I was looking at, at solving this, I mean, the first thing I was trying to solve was just helping these companies I was consulting get these models. So I started implementing them and it was just a huge pain. So, you know, I started looking around for software that was out there. I couldn't find anything. So I thought that's, that's why we should, we should build place. And the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to solve the flow of data. I didn't understand why these different systems that you were using had to be disconnected. Why can't we just connect them so that accounting and finance doesn't need to gather the data, the system gathers the data and puts it where we need it. So I, that was fundamental as to one of the things we needed to do. Another fundamental thing that we needed to do is make these models and these forecasts really, really flexible so you could do a lot of different things with them. So that was foundational. And then the last big thing though was it's been a mystery throughout my entire career, even back when I was at the bank managing a P&L, of why does everything finance do or does, why does it live in a bubble? Like, why is it such this big secret and mystery? And why does no one have access to the systems that they use? And, you know, finance needs information from the business that they trust and understand in order to put that in the model. But equally as important is the business needs this information from finance to be able to make the right business decisions. And usually what happens is because it takes so long to gather this data to actually build these models out, that the business usually doesn't get the information quickly enough. So they're either deferring decisions and, and waiting, which could cost business. They're making decisions with no data, which is kind of terrifying, or they're making decisions without data data, which is also a, a huge risk. So we wanted to break down the silo of, 
why don't we bring finance into the operating system? Why don't we put this financial product, this financial forecasting solution in the same systems that the business runs every single day? So our product is actually the only financial forecasting product that's built on the salesforce.com platform. The platform that, you know, sales is in, supports in, services, everyone, everyone else is using this platform. Let's bring finance into that. So finance has direct access and can collaborate and the business can get this information in real time. And let's just solve all these problems at once. And that's what we set out to do. Um, I've been building products on Salesforce since Talent River. So Talent River was 100% built on Salesforce. So, you know, I learned through the years of building Talent River how to build a good Salesforce-based product. And, you know, the combination of the Salesforce experience, the combination of these financial models that we built, and the combination of just building businesses and running companies and managing people is, I think, our secret sauce of what makes us unique for this. But, you know, ultimately, customers buy us to, to do one, two things. One, streamline their processes so they don't have to manually do this copy-paste things. One of our clients called it the BS copy-paste uh, process because um, it's where his whole team spends all of their time is moving data from one system to the next. So how do we solve that? And then give you real-time live financial forecasts that don't just live in a bubble with the finance team, but the business can see at any time they need. Awesome. So that kind of, uh, you told me what the value is or, or what it does for your business. What is it? Why is it important for your, for your customers? Is it just to make better decisions, more informed decisions? Is there something else there that I'm missing? Um, definitely making better decisions faster with real-time information so they can see it. But then the efficiency piece of, of cutting out all the noise and allowing the system to gather the data. Uh, a finance, most finance people want to be strategic. They don't want to just be you know, numbers crunchers or bead counters or whatever you want to call it. They want to actually, they actually want to be financial advisors to the business. They want to say, hey, We've got these numbers. Here's our interpretation of these numbers. Here are the recommendations we think the business needs to do. They want to have a seat at the table. They want to drive business outcomes and not just be, you know, scorekeepers, if you will. And we enable them to do that. We enable them to actually pay attention and analyze the numbers versus crunching them. Well, that's really interesting. Let's move on to the market and, and talk about kind of uh, who else, if anyone else is kind of doing this. How competitive is the market that you're in? So we are in a very old industry. Uh, financial forecasting software has been around for, for decades. And there's a lot of players in the space, but we are essentially in the third generation of this category. And this new generation, similar to us, is focused on let's streamline the flow of data. Let's also make it really easy to use our product. The historic or legacy products, you know, you usually need a team of people. You're usually looking at like six to 12 months of implementation time before you can even use it. Gosh knows, don't, don't change anything in your business because if you do, you break everything in, in the software and it all has to be retooled and redesigned and all of that. And it was mostly designed for enterprise companies. So you had to be a very large company to afford it, not just for the license itself, but also to maintain it and implement it. We wanted to change that up. We wanted to service companies like Talent Rover, these high growth, fast moving, young companies that they can't afford to hire teams of financial people just to build out these models and run them. They're gonna be scrappy and they, they've got to save costs as much as they can and invest wisely. So we wanted to target SMB and mid-market. Companies you know, with 20 employees to 1,000 employees, we wanted to give them a solution that would let them sort of punch above their weight class, if you will, from a finance perspective. We wanted to give them the richness of having a full-blown finance team without having the cost of having a full-blown finance team. So we set out to target SMB mid-market, which is actually that same strategy that I have with Talent River. Talent River also set up to do SMB mid-market as well. So it's a playbook that I know really, really well. And we wanted to, to make sure that our product could give them value as quickly as possible. So one of the biggest differentiators with us and any other product that I've seen is we're fully deployed and customers fully live on our product in three to six weeks, not six to nine months or six to 12 months. So from a design standpoint, a product design standpoint, there's a lot of work that went into how do we make it simple, but yet robust and very deep, and also how do we make it a, a quick implementation. So we decided to do a segmented approach, which is also different for our industry, because most, if not all of our competitors say, look, we can do financial forecasting for any business. Well, what that means is there's a lot of customization to get all of that set up. So there's, that's where the implementation time comes in. We said, we don't want to do that. Let's focus on the industries that we know really, really well. 
Let's focus on technology and services companies, and let's build a financial forecasting product for them. And from doing that, we're then able to really develop a very deep set of product features that does a lot of things for them, but also there's very little customization. So you get that installation very quickly. And, and so far that model's working really well. We're excited and excited to see where we're going. And you know, we're gonna continue to look at expanding those segments as we grow, but technology and services is a massive market in itself that we have plenty of opportunity to, to focus on and, and not get distracted. What kind of metrics, like what's your North Star metric that you use to kind of track your progress? Talk about kind of like, you know, what's your goal here? Uh, So we use a few different things. One of the things that is really important to us is customer love. And love is always a weird word to use. Hard to quantify. I think it's (laughs) love. (laughs) Yeah, well, we actually set out to do that. So in the middle of last year, I I came up with um, a project for the entire company. And I basically created five teams and I divided everyone in the company into teams. So different roles, different locations, different experience, all of that, and came up with these five different teams. And these teams had to answer three questions. What is customer love? Why is it important? And how do we get it? And the teams then had to present back to me and Cabe and one of our board members, a presentation answering those three different questions. And from those presentations, we've actually taken everything they put together and folded into the operation of the company. Uh, Everything we do is now touched by this focus of customer love. So as much as it's hard to quantify the love itself, you can quantify things that lead you to that, that measurement. For example, you know, our G2 rating, our, our NPS score, our churn rates, our just overall customer satisfaction in general. Like there's things you can measure there. So that's a big foundational one that I think is a bit unique to us and, and everyone in the company gets it. And then, you know, the rest of the metrics that we measure at this stage of the game is we're looking at, you know, revenue growth, um, but combining revenue growth with cash burn. Um, we look at, you know, specific SaaS metrics like the rule of 40, um, net dollar retention, all of those different types of traditional metrics that you would see in a SaaS company. But for us right now, it's what's the cash burn compared to how much money we've raised and where we're at. We're, you know, we're wrapping up a funding round right now. So we've, we've been fortunate enough that people really believe in what we're doing. So we continue to get funded and, and grow the company that way, but we have to manage that cash very efficiently and invest wisely. At the same time, you know, we've got to look at revenue growth. Um, you know, we grew 405% in license revenue from April 1st of 2020 through March 31st of 2021. So we're keenly focused on, on those metrics. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really do the customers get the value out of the product that they think they're paying for? And if you can achieve that and stay focused on that and you hire the right people, the rest of the metrics tend to fall into place. Uh, keep talking about your customers. Who, who uses your product and who are the most important customers for you? Mostly SaaS companies. SaaS and professional services firms is really where the bulk of our customers are. If you look at our pipeline right now, it's pretty much all SaaS companies. Just because we have such a deep product feature set for them that combines a lot of different software solutions essentially into one, into ours. So it saves them a bunch of money and streamlines a bunch of operations for them. Um, the users of our software are the finance and accounting team primarily. Um, so we call them the actual buyers. And then we have beneficiary buyers. So the people that get benefit from our software who aren't the daily users of it are like, you know, the CEO, like I can literally open up my iPhone and I can see all of our financials in real time on my cell phone. So if I'm ever out in an investor meeting or whatever, and someone asks me a number, I just pop open my cell phone. I'm like, here it is, not only for historic, but hey, this is what it's going to be a year from now. So, yeah, and then like we do other things like because we're in the operating system, if you look at like a marketing manager, for example, so marketing managers are very used to using Salesforce to measure like inbound leads and conversion of those leads and, and all of those marketing metrics. Well, we take all of that operational data, but then we also apply financial data on top of it. So, you know, what's your marketing budget? How much do you have left? What's your vendor spend? You know, you converted that marketing lead. It, it turned into an opportunity. Great. That opportunity got closed one, and this is how much money we've actually truly made from that deal. And by the way, we can tie that back to the lead source. So whatever marketing channel you went out to, we can actually quantify, you know, the true value that you're getting from doing marketing on that. So this marketing manager has a dashboard that actually shows 
not only all the operational components of running their department, but also the financial elements in real time in a very easy digestible form. So they're a beneficiary buyer where they get all the output from it. And you know, there's different examples for each of the departments around the company um, that gets the same type of reward, but that's the value of having a finance platform that lives in the operating system as you can connect all of those dots in a very, very meaningful way for the business. And how do you find those customers? So with being new, it's primarily outbound. Um, so as much as I love being built on Salesforce and I 100% think it's the right direction, it's also a bit of a challenge for us because when you think of a finance product, you don't think about Salesforce. And when you think about Salesforce, you don't think about finance products, which makes sense because we're the only one on the platform. So a lot of it is education and brand awareness and just talking about who we are and why we're here and all of that. I think finance, corporate finance is going through an evolution right now where they're, they're adopting new technology. They're looking for ways to improve efficiencies and make, job, make their jobs a little bit easier. So again, they can focus on the numbers versus crunching the numbers. So we do a lot of outbound. So we have outbound BDRs. Our account executives are outbound as well. We leverage LinkedIn a lot. Um, we have metrics around you know, call volume and connections and things like that. But it's a very traditional outbound sales. Our typical sales cycle is about 30 to 45 days. So it's a very quick sale usually, uh, which means for us the volume play that we have to have, have to have enough volume in our pipeline to really hit the numbers we need to hit. So currently we're expanding the sales team. Like last year, we had two AEs on quota at any time. This year we're, we're ramping that to 12. So a very big jump for such a small company. And we're also investing heavily in in marketing and advertising as well, just to educate. Um, you know, once we start speaking to a customer, then the light bulbs start to go off. And it's been super rewarding that when we onboard a customer, we see them getting the value that we talked to them about them getting. And, and that gives us a lot of confidence and uh, that we're moving in the right direction. But, you know, it's a lot of grind right now for the sales team. I, I always talk to the sales team. I'm like, this is the worst time to be with a company as a salesperson because the deck is stacked against you. But it's also one of the most exciting times because you get to put your stamp on the success in the future of the company so that, you know, hopefully that's motivating to them. But they do a tremendous job and work relentlessly to, to try to get more people exposed to what we're doing so we can hopefully help them solve the same forecasting problems that we, we, we experienced. That's really well said. Do you have a, a success story maybe from a customer that, you know, started using your product that really, like you said, the light bulb went off or, or maybe, you know, maybe down the line, the light bulb went off. Is, is there a story you'd like to share about maybe a success with a customer? Yeah. I mean, there's a variety. And, you know, one of the things I had to teach my team is it's not our job to tell a customer how to use our product. We struggled with that a bit where, you know, internally we're like, well, if they don't do these specific things, we don't think they're using the product. And at the end of the day, that's not the name of the game. Um, it's more so, are they getting the value that they think they should for what they're paying for the product? And, you know, we have success stories that are focused around the flow of data, that BS copy paste process that we were talking about. Some customers that just dramatically changed their entire business because it frees up a bunch of headcount. The numbers are where they need to be. People can see them. They can trust them because the system's moving them. Um, and there's some big wins there. There's others that, you know, are going out for a funding round and, you know, one of the one of the key features of our product is cash forecasting and a lot of different scenario planning around that cash forecasting. So we can actually help them figure out how much cash do they need? Why do they need it? Where are the use of funds going to go? Like all the questions that investors are going to ask, our product speeds all of it up. And we've seen clients be able to get through funding rounds faster um, because their financials are so solid and they don't have to worry when they present to an investor that they're potentially going to find something that's wrong. We also see from, you know, like um, some of our customers from a sales perspective where the sales team get to like actually witness the deal closing and they get to see what their commissions are going to be for deals that have closed, but also the commissions for deals that are about to close. How much money are they going to make from those? And that that has helped a lot of customers. So it's kind of all over the, the board with just different different parts of the product really helping different customers in meaningful ways, but that's also one of the exciting things and why I tend to call it a platform versus a software, because there's so many different ways you can use it to get the value. Long-term, we want all customers to try to use the whole product and we look internally at roadmaps that can help them get there. But, you know, just this early out of the gate, seeing some of these wins, especially around the flow of the data, 
and then helping them raise money through through funding efforts um, has been really rewarding. Yeah, that's awesome, and you know, hopefully, customers are sharing that knowledge uh, with with friends and teammates because it sounds very valuable. Let's move on. Let's talk about revenue streams. Uh, sell software to businesses. How do you make money doing that? Yeah, so we're a typical SaaS subscription as a service business. So we focus on recurring revenue streams. So you know, when we sell a deal, you know, our minimum contracts for twelve months. Um, so then we get to recognize that revenue and bring the cash in based off of the payment terms and all of that. And, you know, for us, it's a subscription business. So you're kind of creating a bit of annuity where you're wanting people to renew, which is why customer love and customer success is so important because you work so hard to bring a customer in. You want to make sure you retain them for as long as long as you possibly can. So that's the bulk of our business. Um, we have a small revenue line item for like time and material or, or service hours. One of the key things that I learned at Talent Rover is it's very difficult for a software company to be both a product company and a services company, meaning it's very difficult to be the company that's developing the product in the same company that's implementing and customizing that product. And we decided intentionally at, at Place that we were a product company and we were going to use partners to do the implementations and the customizations. We feel that's much better value for our customers and, and they get the best of both worlds. And then behind the scenes, one of the reasons for that that I learned during during the, the exit process is when a SaaS company gets acquired, usually they don't care too much about your services revenue. I saw that services line get pretty much scratched out from the valuation of the company. And the only thing that they were really focused on was what's the recurring license revenue. So knowing that, learning that, it really made the decision even easier to separate and say, well, we're a product company and not a services company. It just benefits the customers more and long-term it's gonna benefit our investors more. It makes it just easier for us to focus on some key core metrics with growing the business from a revenue standpoint, from the licenses versus trying to do everything for everyone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. We've kind of talked a lot about your company, Place Technology. Now I'd like you to look back and tell me what are some of the key milestones that you've achieved uh, along the journey so far and, and where do you stand today as a company? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that we set out to do was get 10 customers to love us. Like that was goal number one. And we've accomplished that and we're excited about that. So now we want to continue doing that, continue to get more customers that love us and that will evangelize us and that just really enjoy using the product. So that's the foundational goal for everything else that we're doing is continue to grow that customer love. Revenue growth is obviously important in how fast we're growing. Like I said, I mean, from April of last year through the end of March this year, license revenue growth grew 405%. So we're, we're achieving those goals um, from a cash flow standpoint. That's the other big metrics that we pay attention to. We're consistent with hitting our cash burn numbers and we know how we're trending. We also know you know, this funding round that we're doing, how far that gets us and what needs to be achieved in order for us to get there. We, we pay attention a lot to the product as well and what product features are there and what, what product features need to be developed. So we have a pretty long roadmap as to what we're going to develop and why. I also learned from Talent Rover, though, that's really critical for product roadmap that you listen to your customers and don't want the necessary solution what you're going to build, but listen to them and try to figure out what they're actually telling you so you know what problem they actually want you to solve. So that's factored into a lot of the metrics and things that we pay attention to. But we try to keep it simple. I don't like to have a ton of metrics uh, because I think you can just get lost in metrics and you need to be focused on executing and operating the business. So net dollar retention is another big one that, that I mentioned before that we pay attention to. So that's, you know, how much revenue are you keeping month over month when you look at churn and, and growth and all of that that's a big one that i think most SaaS companies should pay attention to so we're doing well um, we could always do better but at this stage of the game where we're at i think we've achieved quite a lot i think the team has a lot to be proud of and i think we have some really happy customers so now it's continuing to evangelize what we do where you stand today what are what are the biggest challenges that you still need to address as a company you know, a lot. We're still early. Um, we've only been in market for, what, 15 months now. Um, luckily, we've seen success with that, but it's still very much early. Um, we spent a lot of time on really focusing on making sure the product was 
very stable and solid and, and does what we say it would do. But with any software product, it's never perfect and it's never finished. So we have a ton of stuff that we need to do and that we want to change and fix and enhance and all of that. So a uh, pretty extensive and aggressive product roadmap. At the same time, we are a new organization. Our sales team is new. So we have a lot of work to do on training and, and developing and continuing to expand the sales team and making sure they're set up for success with the right metrics, but also with the right tools and knowledge and leadership uh, to coach them and all of that. And I think our sales leadership team is doing a great job, but the team is still still super new. So I think that's the other big challenge. And we definitely have a lot of work to do around evangelism and and brand recognition and and really just getting the word out that we're here and this is what we do and this is what makes us different, but this is why we think this is valuable and this is why we think we actually solve the challenges that corporate finance has really well. We try to be a company that doesn't have big egos. That's another thing that we really focus on is, you know, even with the success that we're having, there's still many things we could do better. We're going to celebrate those successes like we've talked about in, in, uh, in this conversation, but at the same time, realize there's a lot to learn, there's a lot to do, and there's a lot of uh, customers that we still need to get to. So, you know, the next few years are gonna be tough. This, the next 12 months for the company is, is gonna be very, very tough um, as with any new start, startup, but, you know, just staying focused and staying grounded and really paying attention again to customer love and to those few metrics that I was talking about from a financial standpoint and ensuring we're having as much fun as we can, even on the tough days uh, to get us through it. Yeah. Well, I love that answer. You can really tell you're not a, a first-time founder. Uh, still very <laughs> much looking at the challenges ahead. Okay, so yeah, uh, maybe two more questions here. Talk about product market fit. Do you think you've reached product market fit or do you still have room to grow there? I think we're close. Um, and the reason why I say that is I think our category is evolving. So I think it's very hard for us to achieve true product market fit with a category that itself hasn't truly defined its its proper place or what it really is. I think you see a lot of companies like us that we compete with that are also helping us define this new category of corporate finance. I think we're in a really good position. I think we've, you know, over the past six months, focused a lot on positioning and messaging and why what we do is important um, and how it helps and really spend a lot of time talking with customers to find out what challenges we can actually solve for them and making sure they understand it. So I think we've done a lot, but I think as the category continues to evolve, we continue to plant our, our, our feet and, and get very stable and solid with, with the messaging. And I hope that makes you know the sales process a little bit easier as, as more people are aware of this technology actually existing. So we're not having to educate as much as we do, but I think we've made really good progress, but there's still a ton of work to do around it. Awesome. All right. Uh, last question here. You know, we kind of started the interview by uh, talking about uh, what's made you successful. I kind of want to put a bow on that. Tell me like, you know, talk about what's contributed to your success. You've, you've had a wide range of jobs and, uh, you know, you've, <laughs> founded and co-founded two companies that seem to be doing pretty damn well. Uh, so yeah, what do you think has contributed to your success the most? And do you have any advice for, say, a 26-year-old podcaster? Yeah, I mean, I think don't be afraid to take a, a risk. Don't be afraid to make a move. Like if you look at all the different cities I've lived in, I've lived a lot of places around the country and it's all for you know work, yeah. all for taking a chance, all for pushing myself. You know, I've taken on jobs that I didn't have the experience for, like when Kent gave me the opportunity to head technology for the company. And also when we decided to build Talent Rover, a staffing recruiting operating software, or even now at Place, where we've decided to try to take on corporate finance, which is a very challenging, highly competitive uh, segment. You know, don't be afraid to take a risk and believe in yourself. And, and, and really, like one of the things I always talk to people about is never take a job for money. Uh, if you ever take a job for money, you're taking it for the wrong reason. If you take a job that you're passionate about, money will come. And that's a very true statement. Mm -hmm. If you love what you do, it, it just makes it all a lot easier. You know, I'm also, I don't know, I, I, I love to work. So I work every day. Even on the weekends, I get up and work for a few hours. And for me, it's not 
work. It's, it's part of my life. It's part of me and I enjoy it. I still have to make sure that I block time for friends and family and social and disconnecting from work, which was another lesson I learned uh, at Talent River. I used to go on vacations and I used to work through those vacations. Now I go on vacation <laughs> and I go on vacation. I don't work. And I think, you know, a lot of founders or a lot of people that are building their career can get consumed with, no, I got to be on, I got to be present. Well, eventually you drain yourself down and you're not effective and you're not you doing yourself or anyone you work with any any real value there. So take a break and relax. But, you know, I think the other big thing is try to figure out what you want to do. Like I never really had a defined career plan, but I started to figure out things that I really liked and I was passionate about. And then I put a lot of thought into what could I do to grow those things? And that that led me to where I'm at. And of course, and this will be no surprise based off of this conversation, is relationships. And and you've got to invest in people as much as they invest in you. And if you are genuinely doing that, people will help you and people will allow you to do things you never thought you could do and give you opportunities that you never thought you could have. But again, a lot of hard work, a lot of focus, showing up, doing doing the job and, and trying to always own your commitments. If you say you're going to do something, you damn well better try to get it done or, or die trying to a certain extent to, to make it happen. And, and that will get you a, a long way in the professional world. Well, awesome. I feel like I could like run through a brick wall after that. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, it was a fantastic episode. You mentioned you know multiple times you guys are putting out this education. What's the best way for listeners to find that educational material and maybe reach you and, and learn about Place Technology? Yeah, I do a lot on LinkedIn. So, you know, finding me on LinkedIn is probably the best way to see all things that we're talking about. Also looking at our company. So placetechnology.com is, is our website. You can find a ton of stuff there. I'm always happy to, happy to talk to people. So, you know, I'm on Twitter, Brandon, score, Brandon underscore Metcalf. But the easiest way typically to, to catch up with me and see what we're up to is to look at my LinkedIn profile. Well, you know where to find him. Uh, we're going to end the episode there. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you have other comments, uh, email us at, I think it's angelnears.com. Uh, we'll, we'll get that down straight, uh, down pat later. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, thanks for joining the show today. I got to admit, when I saw that the rundown was financial forecasting, I <laughs> did not expect to be talking about uh, love and relationships this much, but... I really did learn a lot of appreciate your approach to business and I think it's unique and I'm happy to share it. So thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>